Welcome to the Brand the Interpreter podcast. I am your host, Mireya Perez, and this platform is dedicated to sharing the stories of language professionals, that is, the interpreters and translators from around the world. This show aims to highlight not just the profession, but mainly the people behind the amazing work. These are your stories about our profession, and this is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Liberty Language Services and its new sister company, the Academy of Interpretation, that launched in early 2022. The Academy of Interpretation is an online education and learning platform for the language services industry. The AOI's mission is to expand access to educational courses while establishing a standard of quality and professionalism. They do this by bringing language service providers, content creators, and students together on an online platform that's accessible to everyone. The Academy of Interpretation was founded to address the widespread problem of untrained interpreters working in the field. The AOI offers professional accredited courses for interpreters and serves as a platform for organizations to refer their interpreters for training. The AOI is offering Brand the Interpreter listeners a 10% discount on all courses using the discount code AOI10BTI. This code cannot be combined with any other discounts. But check out the episode show notes for more information about the Academy of Interpretation or visit their website at www.academyofinterpretation.com. Liberty Language Services is a rapidly growing language service company that recently celebrated 11 years of providing language access services, and they are currently hiring freelance interpreters for a variety of languages. To find out more about Liberty or to apply, Check out the episode notes. Welcome back, language professionals from around the world, to another season of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. I'm Mireya, your host, and today marks a new frontier for Brand the Interpreter. I am thrilled to be offering now the video component to the show on YouTube. And I'm even more excited for what lies ahead. And I cannot wait to share it with you. But for now, please enjoy watching your favorite guests on the show. Look for the Brandy Interpreter podcast on YouTube. And remember to subscribe to the channel and share it with your colleagues. Because the success of the Brandy Interpreter podcast is all thanks to you supporting the show. So share away. I'm excited to introduce today's language professional joining us from Las Vegas, Nevada. Judy Jenner is a master-level court-certified Spanish interpreter and a court-registered German interpreter in Nevada, where she also teaches simultaneous interpretation for the University of Nevada, Las Vegas Continuing Education Certificate for Legal Interpreting Program. Judy is a certified California Spanish court interpreter and serves as one of the spokespersons of the American Translators Association. She spearheaded one of America's first Spanish language travel sites, the Spanish language version of Vegas.com. 
She writes the monthly Entrepreneurial Linguist column for the American Translators Association's Chronicle and contributes to the Institute of Translation and Interpreting's Bulletin. Her book, The Entrepreneurial Linguist, The Business School Approach to Freelance Translation, which she co-authored with her twin sister, is required reading at several translation programs around the world and has sold more than 7,500 copies. So, without further ado... Please welcome Judy Jenner to the show. Judy, it is such a pleasure and a privilege to have you on the show here today. I am so fortunate. I'm so excited for today's conversation. So thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Maria. It sounds like a really great effort you're making here, just great work you're putting out, and I'm happy to be part of it. Thank you. I very much appreciate that. And I think it, uh, it, it's two parts and in part my desire to put the stories out there, but also the other part really lies on the guests on the show that are so willing to come on and share their stories. So again, thank you. I appreciate it. My pleasure. I think it's super important we tell these stories about interpreters, also to give them a face, no more invisible interpreters. <laughs> I think, you know, if, the, if the, the podcast spreads beyond the industry and uh, other folks listen to it, I think that'd be really great. So they know more about the interpreters who help them bridge the language gap every day. You know? Yeah, you totally nailed the big dream. So that is absolutely <laughs> the hope. So continue continue having these conversations with, with us and sharing your stories, guys, because I definitely hope that that is indeed what ends up happening. Judy, I'd like to get started, as I do with all my conversations with the amazing, incredible guests that come on. And I'd like to ask you, what did you aspire to be when you grew up as a child? <laughs> That's a very popular question. I love that question. It's brilliant. Well, initially, I wanted to become a tennis player, and I did become a tennis player, and I played on the junior tour and a little bit on the professional tour and the very small tournaments. And then I took took a full scholarship to a Division One university, which you know, so I was I was good enough, but not good enough to really have a great career, right? Which I realized relatively early on. I was good enough to earn a full scholarship to a Division wow. One university. Yeah, that was great. You know, I, I, I was smart enough to understand that I should take that that tennis scholarship and not continue on the pro tour because I knew that I wouldn't have been good enough to be, let's say, top three hundred in the world or so, which is when approximately when you start making some actual money. It's not, tennis isn't as glamorous as you think. It's only the top one hundred or so that are really, really yeah, doing super well. But uh, when we're I say we because I have a twin sister. We did have another dream that we talked about early on when we we're on the school bus. I remember in, in Mexico City, which is where we grew up. And we said, when we grow up, we're going to have a language consulting company. And we, of course, had no idea what this was because we were 12. It just sounded really cool. And we said, <laughs> we'll call it gender and gender cross-cultural communication or something like that. We just liked that sort of baby. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> the term it just sounded really cool we picked it up somewhere <laughs> I don't know where and but we did know that we wanted to work in what we thought would be language consulting we didn't really know what translation or interpreting was but so there, it was an early dream and interestingly enough both of the things I 
wanted to do did happen to some degree you know that <laughs> is penis, so... penis a smaller degree <laughs> but still the fact that you are thinking that at such a young age and you know for the most part not all the time but for the most part the stories that I hear you know are way out there right like uh, uh, not in terms of whether or not they can become a reality but in terms of where we actually end up as adults you know like did we even put in the effort to be I don't know, an astronaut or whatever it may be. <laughs> That's true. I do. Yeah. I think I was a little bit more realistic in my dreams because I'm a very athletic family and I was a very athletic child. So that made sense. But of course, you know, I think most kids want to play some sort of sport professionally. And I, you know, it was semi-pro, you know, I did drop out of high school for a little bit to play on the tour. And, um, but I, I soon realized that that wasn't where the, <laughs> where the money is at my level. Right. I mean, and interesting enough, when I was already in my late thirties, I would check the world rankings from the WTA, the women's tennis association. And there were some, some ladies who played with me when I was in my, in my late really? teens, early twenties, and they're still playing on the tour and wow. they're ranked like, you know, 600 in the world or something. And <laughs> I just, I mean, which is an incredible achievement, right. But there was very little money in it at that level. And I certainly didn't want to do that. And I knew that I wasn't good enough to get to the level where you actually start making money. <laughs> Yeah, so. you knew you want to pay your bills on time. So what that entailed, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> maybe yes. not the tennis part. But so how does a 12-year-old think about languages at, at, at that age when, you know, language potentially, well, let's start with you did grow up in a multilingual household, correct? Right. So my parents are Austrian. My mom is half German. My dad's an expat. And we were born in Austria, but we moved to Mexico City in elementary school. So languages are something we were always surrounded by. We went to a German school in Mexico City where they made you speak German, whether you liked it or not. So, so half the curriculum is in German. The other half was in Spanish. And then there's a lot of English all written, by the way, all, all the English I learned in elementary school, middle school and high school was all in writing. I didn't have to say a thing. And I thought I was just very, very good. But it turns out I was not. <laughs> I was very good at writing essays. I wasn't very good at talking. Um, so, yeah, I just felt, felt that languages were something that came easily. There was a lot of ad hoc interpreting for people in Mexico when I was a kid, you know, occasionally for my mom and we just thought, yeah, language is something we're we're actually good at, something we enjoy. And I, you know, I was pretty decent at math, but I didn't enjoy that as much. So it was definitely going to be something in the humanities. That the the move to Mexico City at such a young age must have had a big impact uh, with with regards to where you were born and raised, and then suddenly it's a completely different culture. I imagine, um, you know, an experience. What is something that you really that you remember, you know, at first arriving to Mexico City that it stayed with you till today? That's a really good question. Actually, I have an answer, and I, I swear I didn't know the question ahead of time. But <laughs> my very first memory of Mexico City as a, as a kid was landing in Mexico in January because we moved in January. And Austria isn't a super cold country. It's not like you know Norway or something. But it's it's we do wear winter jackets in the winter, especially in the, in the cities, and it does get really cold in the Alps. But anyway, we land in Mexico City and we leave the airport. 
Court, and there is a police man, it was definitely a man, directing traffic in short sleeve, in a short sleeve shirt. And I just thought that was the most incredible thing ever. I'm like, it's January, you know. My dad's like, what? Of course he's wearing short sleeves. And I said, it's January. And my dad, our dad had been traveling to Mexico for business for years by then. And he was, you know, that was, he was used to it. And we just thought, oh, what, what an amazing country. Is, uh, <laughs> the weather is great. <laughs> I mean, we were little kids. So I, I don't have a ton of very specific memories uh, from my early childhood in, in, in Austria. You know, most of my, my memories really, really start uh, you know, of course, I have some early childhood memories, but Mexico City is the defining period of my life. And I couldn't have been more grateful to our parents, you know, both my mom and my dad, of course, my dad for his job, but for my mom for agreeing to move to Mexico City yeah. with two young <laughs> kids in the in the 80s without speaking the language. And a lot of expats wives didn't want to do that. And I, I get it. <laughs> So I'm very, very proud to have grown up where I grew up. And I oftentimes I wish I would have actually been born in Mexico, but but I, I'm not. So I consider myself an honorary Mexican if they'll have me. But, <laughs> um, but and yeah, I think it's an it's an extraordinary country and it was an extraordinary childhood. That's amazing. You you mentioned earlier you you have a twin and and I mean having that buddy, I'm sure made a significant difference in the experience as well and being able to to share right the the potentially common experiences what what was something about mexico city that you feel was i mean you you mentioned earlier you don't really have that many memories um from earlier in your years but what was something about mexico city that you just said I, I love this. I really love this about about the culture and about the people and just where you were that that stood out, if you recall. I don't even know where to start, but I may get a little teary eyed here, too. And I think more than anything, it's the joy. It's just the joy of living, right? And the colors and the smells. And there, there's a real, real joy that I don't really see in in the European countries, at least in the central and northern European countries as much, in spite of all the challenges that Mexico has and in spite of the struggles that people face, there is a joy in living, right? There, there are these bright colors that are very sort of emblematic of Mexico. And I, I do remember that more than anything, the, the joy. And I and I still feel that very much when I when I go back to Mexico, which is as often as I can. It's, it's, a, it's a very special place, right? So... Yeah, that's I think that would be the main one, the joy. That's beautiful. Yeah, I can totally it's it's interesting how as you as you speak it, I can I can sense it. Like I can see it, you know, in my mind's eye and I can feel it inside. So there is definitely something about that. I would definitely agree. Potentially even the slowdown of things there, um, which allow for the opportunity to really be present and enjoy things. So that that was beautiful. Thanks for having shared that, Judy. Of course. Being that I happen to be a trained interpreter in K-12 education and one uh, for a school district that is really focusing right now on dual language programs in the schools, you mentioned you were fortunate to enter a school that gave you the opportunity to learn in two languages. So were these the languages spoken at home or were these brand new languages that you were now immersed in and, and having to pick up? 
written, of course. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, German German was a language I learned uh, as a little child in, in Austria. And then in Mexico City, the way it works, the German school, it's, it's an international school, a private school. I hate to admit it. I, I'm a big fan of public education, but that, that wasn't an option because when we moved to Mexico City, I mean, we're in elementary school, so you pick up the language very quickly, but we had to go to an international school that would be would be accepted if we ever moved back to Austria, right? So we couldn't just enroll in a Mexican school. Also, we didn't speak the language, but it happened. It happened very quickly <laughs> at that age. You know, you're a sponge. So the the way the German school Alexander von Humboldt works around the world, wherever the school is located, because they have them all over the world for expats and diplomats is that they teach half the curriculum in German. They teach the German curriculum from the German Ministry of Education, and then they teach the other half from the, the whatever country is that they're in, right? If they're in Brazil or in Iraq or in Indonesia or in Mexico, so they teach the Mexican Ministry of Education's curriculum in that language. So when you're a newcomer, I think they give you the first six months, they stick you in the in all the classes, even if you're not understanding much. And then after six months, they start grading you. Then you, so you get like a six month grace period and you don't have any grades for the, for the Mexican side of the curriculum in our case. And then after six months, they're like, yeah, guess what? Welcome to Mexico. We're going to grade you on geography in Spanish, on chemistry in Spanish or whatever it was. <laughs> so in, in my, in my home, our parents felt very strongly about about speaking German, about preserving the language, which is something that I much admire them for. But as we became preteens and teens, we didn't particularly think German was a very hip language. <laughs> and I think that's a very common immigrant experience, right? That you want to speak the language of the country you're in, you know? And right. for us, that was Mexico. That's what all our friends spoke. And um, so we did speak German to our parents, but I, if memory serves me right, it was rather reluctantly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because we were forced. Our parents yeah. forced us. <laughs> yeah, I did do later. <laughs> exactly. I do remember some silly conversations where the question would be in German and we would answer in Spanish, which is a silly, you know, I think that must have been teenage rebellion. Of course, looking back, I'm, I am very grateful and I'm happy that they emphasized the importance of, of that language because so many people stop with those languages disappear, right? Because you never speak them. Um, and at the yeah. German school, certainly we had to speak in with our professors in German, but uh, in this, you know, in recess and amongst each other, we never, we never spoke German. <laughs> when do you feel that you became fluent in Spanish? When do you, oh, I, do you immediately? <laughs> I don't remember, but it was, it was relatively quick. I think it must've been a few months, but I, yeah. you know, you just don't have those, those landmark memories as a kid anymore. We, I wish I could say that. I admire those people who know exactly. I, I don't know how they would know. possibly know this or how they would have, what metric it would be. Like what, <laughs> what metric are we using? I don't, I don't know, but I ended, I did very well in all my classes and, and it's Spanish and you know so when the full when the full sentence uh, uh when the full sentence came out and it was understood like whoa I got this I think I'm I'm totally gonna be fine so so how long were you in Mexico City uh, until you uh, moved into or transitioned into university and and got really into uh you know schooling for languages it was right before university so my dad moved us back right before universities. I think I spent 
about a year after in Austria, which that was a, that was a tough transition. You know, just as a almost 18 year old to have to move again was 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 rough. You know, the, the move to Mexico was beautiful and brilliant. The move back was hard because I didn't really have many cultural references for Austria. So it, it was a tough, difficult move, I would say. And then I came to the U.S. for college, which I'd always wanted. I always wanted to go to college in the U.S. You know, in, in Mexico City in my childhood, the U.S. was a very big point of reference. And it's what we all aspire to for better or for worse. That's where, where we all wanted to go on vacation. That's where we all wanted to go shopping. That's where we all wanted to go to college. <laughs> and um, and I did. So then I moved uh, back to this side of the Atlantic at the age of uh, 19. But I didn't study language as a first. I studied business first. Ah, which we'll get into how business uh, does actually uh, come back into your life or rather is mixed with what you're currently doing now. So 19 is pretty young to come to the States. Did you come by yourself? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) With two suitcases, one black and one red. (laughs) (laughs) That is absolutely courageous. And so you feel you're ready for business school uh, in the States. And once you're in there, do you know exactly what you want to do with the with your degree? Well, it wasn't business school, it was undergraduate, and then it was business school as a graduate degree. But I just knew I wanted to go to college. And looking back, it does seem sort of crazy, right, that you'd move across the world by yourself with two suitcases into a dorm, into a country that you've been a few times. But you know, I think if you're not courageous at that age, you you would never do it, right? You you'd never take any risks. But now in my 40s, it seems um, almost unimaginable. But back then, I did not think about it for one second. I I remember being not scared at all. I just thought this is this is what I want to do, and let's go do it. <laughs> Where did you um, land? In Vegas, in Las Vegas. Yeah, that's really? uh, I, I was offered many scholarships around the country, and I my dad took me on a tour of the top eight colleges that I picked. And then I, because, you know, when this is back in the 90s, and I didn't really, this is be- early days of the internet. You couldn't really research the universities that much. And my dad knew a lot about universities, but he said, no, nah, this is a good school. This is not such a good school. Let's go look at some of them. And um, I did... You, I've never regretted coming to Vegas, but academically, I could have gone to a much stronger school. But I, I felt there was something special about the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, where I'm now a professor and donor yes. and a very proud member of uh, of the board of directors for my college. And yeah, it's uh, yeah, it feels like I've come a long way when I go to these events at the university and the they give me personal a special parking spot, and I, I think I, I think back of when I came here with my two suitcases and not really, really speaking any any English, right? I, I, yeah, it was it's it's been a long time. <laughs> you know, I find it just even the stories even more admirable because it's like you know you you you're positioned in these different places where you're not familiar with the language. And yet you thrive and, and, you know, mainly potentially, I'm sure there's, you know, all kinds of other factors and elements that, that uh, take part in, in your growing in the language, but you did, you did mention you were, you, there was interest there in languages. And so, you know, I'm sure that that played a big role, but I love how everything ultimately comes back together full circle. And now you're giving back to the community that gave to you. I think, I think that's, that's amazing. When you, when you finish schooling, Judy, 
were, did you know what you wanted to do with your degree? Like many of us do right after we're done with the degree, I know exactly what I want to do, but did you? I know. I really wasn't sure. I, I mean, I knew that I'd end up in languages somehow, but I knew that it was going to be a struggle because I, I, I'm an also an immigrant to this country and they figured out relatively quickly that uh, you cannot get an H-1B visa or green card for being a translator or an interpreter. That just didn't didn't happen, right? So I, I looked into this and I figured, well, it's not going to happen. Nobody's going to sponsor me. So I ended up working in hospitality and casinos, which is you know, the the main industry in Vegas and did a lot of interpreting in those jobs and had a lot of fun and worked in jobs that sound completely out of movies, like working with high rollers in a casino who would spend millions in an evening. And a lot of them were Mexican. And my job was to make sure that they're happy and to interpret for them. So I did a, a lot of uh, some detours until I finally got to the translation and interpreting. But I do think it's generally an under, undervalued skill, right? I don't, I remember looking into whether I could get sponsored by a company to be in translation and interpreting. It just wasn't something that the Department of Labor was interested in back then, but we're talking about, you know, late 90s. And I don't think it's unfortunately changed. So yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> right. Has there been much change there? But uh, I mean, that's that's why we're here. That's why that's why we're sharing our stories. And hopefully, you know, <laughs> it continues to to be something that is looked at as, yes, this is a profession. When did you decide that interpreting or translation or or just the thought of making the language industry into something that you wanted to do professionally come into play? I mean, you always had that thought. I mean, at the age of 12, your sister and you were already planning, you know, your big dream of of having your own company. But when did you actually make that transition from employee to entrepreneur, which came first? Hmm. Well, I did translations early on. There was this, um, I think it was in high school, the last year of high school in Austria, I did some translations for a magazine, which without any formal training, but your instincts are good. You know, I talk about training as being very important, but instinct and, you know, having, being a very strong writer is also something that, that, that either you have it or you don't, right? And we don't like to say that, but you can turn people into great translators, with a lot of training, but some of the best translators I know have incredible instincts and studied something completely different, mm. which if you say that too loud in Europe, then people get very upset because there they have a very strict academic tradition of studying translation here in the Americas. We just don't have that. And, right. and I, I work with incredible translators all the time. And some of them have studied translation and some of them haven't, but my first, uh, well, actually the, the translation assignments I did in high school were paid too, but I did one, a formal one in, in college. The, I was looking for an on-campus job and I found one for translator and I was apparently the only applicant who could show previous translations. <laughs> and it was a, a, a magazine for high school students that it was partially published by the university, but it was citywide here in Vegas. And it was supposed to give high school students a creative outlet that they could write for a newspaper that was not put out by their school, but was put out by a, an independent party. So they could really write about what's on their mind. Right. So since Las Vegas is about 30% Hispanic, the editor of this um, newspaper decided that we needed a Spanish language section. So in the beginning, it was me and a couple of translators and translating a lot of the content. And then we started transitioning into original content written in Spanish, 
often by me, but mostly by, by students because it was supposed to be by students for students. And I, I wasn't that much older than these high school students. I was like, you know, 20 and I uh, did that for a few years and got a ton of experience also in layout and editing and, and my editor, Sari Aisley, who's one of my mentors, may she rest in peace. She uh, she would send me off to interview people, uh, politicians. And she said, you just go interview this guy. And then we write, <laughs> you write an article in Spanish about it. I'm like, what? But I'm 20. And she's like, so what? Go ask these guys some hard questions. So that was my, and that was actually really intense writing and translation. My editor wasn't a translator, but she uh, she would send out my translations to get proofread by a professor of Spanish at the university who would come back and say, this is great. I don't have anything to contribute. Wow. <laughs> that made me feel really good. And then okay. um, right after I got my green card, I I, I started working at a dot com, uh, Vegas.com, which was back then a, a very big travel site. It was the first travel site in America that launched a Spanish language version of it. Before anybody else did it, before Delta, before Southwest Airlines, before Hilton, before anybody had an actual Spanish language website with a with a booking engine where you could actually book everything in Spanish, Vegas.com did it. And that was in the early 2000s. It was the biggest single city website in the world, which that was a long time ago. So we launched it in 2003, and I was in charge of. We didn't even know what it was called, but I guess it's called localization. But back then, it didn't really have a name. This is, <laughs> we just we're just making it up as we went along. But we produced a what I'd say is a world class website with a ton of programmers and a lot of uh, tech work. And I learned a lot about the internet. It was absolutely groundbreaking and incredible and new. And I hired a lot of translators. I trained a lot of translators. I worked with technology a lot and. And it, I, yeah, it was a great learning experience, but then my sister and I always said we needed to run this business together. And by this point, she'd already been running the European side of Twin Translations for five years, I think. And she kept on saying, you need to join me full time. And I said, I'm having too much fun at Vegas.com. And but at <laughs> some point I decided that, yeah, I needed to, to go back to what the original plan was. And because I did both for a while. I was working part-time in our business and full-time at Vegas.com. And so, and I think in 2008 or so, I finally decided, okay, I'm, I'm ready to just have one job. <laughs> wow. And, you know, that's a great segue to, to the next part of our conversation, which is having to, to go from uh, Vegas.com, you were an employee. Is that I correct? Mm -hmm, so yeah. having mm -hmm. to go from being an employee to being an entrepreneur, a solopreneur, um, to running your own business, basically. And so you make this transition. And by now, it's been about how long since since you took your business classes and all of that? About how long would you say? Oh, that's a, good, that's a good question. Maybe like <laughs> seven years or something. I, I finished my graduate degree in business in 2001. No, it hasn't been that long. Yeah, okay, maybe like, yeah, like seven years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it's about seven years now. It's like, oh my gosh, let me go back and remember what everything that I was taught, you know, in school in order to apply it here. What did you find the most challenging between that transition period, aside from making the actual decision? Uh, I need help. I'm scrambling to find interpreters for our board meeting. We have a staffed Spanish interpreter, but we need Korean, Farsi, and Arabic. 
Plus, we have a slew of IEP meetings coming up, most of them in exotic languages. I'm calling everywhere. I know what we need. I'm at the perfect translation agency at OCDE's Interpreters and Translators Conference. Certified Interpreting Services. They offer in-person and virtual services. Certified Interpreting Services? Yes. They're professional, warm, and perfect for our diverse district's needs. How do we contact them? Call or email. It's all on their website. CISinterpreters.com CISinterpreters.com That's just what we need. I'm contacting them now. Thank you for calling Seraphim Interpreting Services. This is Jasmine. Well, full disclosure, we'd already started the business many years before, right? Mm-hmm. And my sister was running it very successfully in, in Austria, which is why she needed help to <laughs> keep up with the, with the work. And we've always had, you know, lovely freelance translators who do projects for us. So I guess technically we're a boutique agency, mm-hmm. but I know that word is uh, slightly loaded these days. But yeah. <laughs> of course there are great agencies, but there's also many not so great ones. But yeah, taking the plunge full time was scary. I was used to a, a very good salary to a lot of benefits, the company paying into my 401k, a lot of paid vacations and I saw from my sister that obviously her situation was totally different, but I also saw that she seemed to be enjoying her life tremendously more than I was. So I figured uh, I'll jump in and I did it in the middle of the recession in 2008. And, you know, going to business school certainly is very helpful. And I, we talk about that in the book and I talk about that in the courses that I give, but it's not like business school really teaches you to run a small business, but mm-hmm. it does teach you it does teach you to think more strategically than most of us do. So, and that I think was one of my strengths, right? That I thought, where do I want to be in five years? How, how do I want to do this? I don't want to just start working. I had some plans and some goals and some ideas and not all, not all of them turned out to be good or correct or reachable, but I, I, I think I had more of a plan than than most people do. I think that's what business school teaches you. That but, it taught you. Yeah. Yeah. But you don't need to go out and spend a ton of money in a business degree. I don't, I don't think you necessarily need that for this business, but it certainly, it certainly doesn't hurt. Didn't hurt for me. Yeah. It just so happened that you had had this training and now you were going to make this, uh, you know, full, full time deal for you. And you're able to bring those skill sets. I think that those are conversations that we've had in this platform before about other, other things, other skill sets, and we're able to basically fuse them together with, with the profession, right. In, in, in the industry. And, and I find that, you know, that that's my favorite part of these conversations is we don't have to stick to one thing. We confuse these different skill sets. And in your case, you happen to come in with training in business. I'd like to quote uh, uh, a phrase from the book, if I may, with regards to this very particular <laughs> to this very particular topic, because I, I as soon as I read it, I was like, when when was this written? This is so true to this Long day. Time ago. <laughs> We continue to mention this very same thing, which is you say many freelance translators and interpreters, both those with degrees from translation institutes and those without, feel that they are ill-prepared for running a business upon graduation. So we train for the profession, but then when we're like, okay, like uh, we're ready to go, what do I do first? So what should we be thinking if we're thinking about transitioning into the language field 
solo. If we're not necessarily, let's say, working with an agency yet, or if we're considering I'd like to be my own business, what should we be thinking about first, Judy? Well, all kinds of things. But first of all, you th- you should eliminate the word just from your vocabulary. I'm just a translator or interpreter. You should be very proud of being a small business because that's just as legitimate as any other business. And last time I checked, it's not the small businesses that brought down the economy. It was the large businesses. They were too large to fail. So small businesses are something that are the backbone of every economy in, in every country around the world. And Sometimes we forget that we feel very intimidated and we feel that we're not worthwhile because we're small. But I, I, I think the opposite. I think that it's a good thing that we're small. It's a good thing that we are, you know, good at adapting to change and that we can serve our customers. So, yeah, don't ever say I'm just the translator or just the interpreter. Right. But don't. Don't incorrectly present your size either. I, I see a lot of websites where it's clearly just one person and it's all the writing is in plural. We do this and this. We do this. And I find that personally a bit misleading. If I'm the client and it says the plural, I expect more than one person. At least people who know grammar expect more than one person. And then if it's just <laughs> one person, the question is, why don't we just write this in the singular? And I think the reason is that we're, we're a little insecure about uh, being solopreneurs. And we shouldn't because it's mm. just as legitimate as being in a large company. I've, I've done both and uh, both are legitimate. And I think the second most important thing is learning to say no. And that took me a very long time. And um, my sister and I finally gave a presentation about this at the ATA conference a couple of years ago called The Power of No. And it's something very simple, right? This session was part inspirational, part psychotherapy, part sort of cheerleading session. But I think in our profession that's so female dominated, we are so afraid of saying no. We say yes to stuff we don't want to do. Mm. We take projects at rates that we don't want. We accept deadlines that we know mean staying up all night. And and I get it. I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad thing that we do that. I know where we're coming from. It's very female to want to please, to say yes. And you don't want to say no to perfectly good business. But the business is only good if it also works for you. So saying no is a very, very powerful thing. And you have to draw boundaries in your business, just like you draw in your personal relationships with your spouse or if you have kids, you have to establish boundaries. And no is a very powerful word. I just told a client no five minutes before he got on the phone and he wasn't particularly happy about it. But I told him you didn't send me the payment by yesterday, so we don't have a deal. Yes. And you know, it. I, I heard someone else say at one point, uh, not necessarily regarding the language industry, but business in itself, that when you say no to something that does not match um, you know, your values and, and your work and, and, you know, just, just how you've established yourself as a business, you say no to, to someone, but potentially leaving the door open to someone that you want to say yes to. So what happens if you do an overload of, you know, more, more no's or that should be no's than yeses, and then you're too busy for that ideal client that you are seeking and you do want to work with. So I love that. Yeah, It's a classic uh, economics issue of opportunity cost, right? Every time you do something, 
and I won't bore you too much with economics, but I did study a lot of economics. Every time you do something, you're giving up something else, right? Like you are giving up the opportunity right now of walking your dog or spending time with your loved ones because you're doing this with me. And the same is true for me, right? There's We're giving up something for this. It's never truly free. So just like you said, if you say yes to something you don't really want to do, just because either you feel obligated or you feel that there's no, no better work around the corner, then you're cutting yourself off from the possibility of something else. And it's, it's okay. We all do that. We've all said, yes to stuff we don't like. But as I get older and as I get more assertive, which I think you do get more assertive with age, I just say, no, thank you. And that's a complete sentence. I mean, if I can help the client and if I can recommend somebody else to do it, I will. But if I think that terms and conditions are bad, mm. like this, this gentleman I just talked to, he said, will you recommend somebody else? I said, absolutely not. You, you, you've already proven to me that you don't pay. Why would I send you one of my colleagues that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. And he said, well, thank you. And he seemed a little angry, but I, I felt like it was a perfectly okay way to handle it. He knew, he knew what the terms were and he, he didn't stick to them. So he doesn't get an interpreter for tomorrow. Exactly. Yeah. I was just <laughs> going to say yes. It, and why in the world would I want to position one of my colleagues to work with someone that I already know is, is from the onset already giving problems. That's, that's a red flag. <laughs> exactly. But oftentimes a project, it's not a, that it's like, it's not a good fit. I just, I'm just not available or the deadline isn't good. And then I'll say, Hey, you know, I have somebody else who can do this, or let me put you in contact with this other person, because I do think we're in the customer problem solving business. If I can mm-hmm. solve the customer's problem, even if it's not me personally, I certainly will try everything I can to do it. But some customers are unreasonable, just like in every industry. Right. And uh, I don't, I don't think I should uh, pass the problem on to one of my colleagues. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, that you're on your own, kiddo, for that one. You got to go find your yourself someone else. Right. You, there's so many things that you do, Judy, and and I I want to have the opportunity to talk a little bit about all of the different things that you've been able to take part in. One of those things is um, something that is called master level court certified Spanish interpreter. Now, being that you came into you know Mexico City not speaking the language and then being fully fluent and then coming to the States and, you know, getting into business and then eventually transitioning into, you know, the language industry full-time, you know, as an entrepreneur, how did this come to be? Did you always aspire to maybe one day end up in court or was it something that you came across that you thought I'd like to challenge myself? You have so many great questions. <laughs> well, we started as translators, you know, and my, my sister did study translation formerly, both at the undergraduate and the graduate level. I, I didn't, so I came from the business side. So we always were in translation. That's what we always excelled at. We we're always very good writers. And I tell my own students that now, you know, are, were you the kid in English class that everybody would come over and want to copy their essay? Were you the kid who's helping other people write essays? If, if you were that kid, you're probably a good translator, right? But if you don't know where the accents go, then you may not make such a good into Spanish translator. (laughs) Um, So we always thought about our lives being in written, right? That the language services work would do would be in writing. 
But I think about 10 years in or something into our careers, we both started getting really interested in interpreting. And we thought it was this magical process that was happening that we could never do because we have so much time to think about every word and translation. <laughs> and it just it just seemed absolutely impossible. And I just remember watching colleagues in court or at conferences thinking, I cannot ever possibly do that. And one day we both decided, well, let's uh, let's get a little bit of training and let's um, see if we have any talent for this. <laughs> so I, I enrolled in a 40-hour medical interpreting course called um, Connecting Worlds, which is taught by a very dear friend of mine, Tracy Young, who's both a medical interpreter and a nurse. And she said, yeah, you have a lot of talent. And I said, oh, that's great. <laughs> and uh, from there, I, I turns out I wasn't that interested in medical. I relatively quickly figured out that I preferred courts. You know, my I have a lot of lawyers in my family and my dad's mm -hmm. a jurist. So I, uh, my husband's a lawyer. So I just thought legal was a better fit. And my sister relatively quickly went into conference interpreting and became accredited by the European Union institutions. And then I started seeing if I could pass these notoriously difficult court interpreting exams. And uh, turns out I did, and I'm federally certified in addition to the Nevada and California one. I guess the last frontier for court interpreting is the federal certification, which, uh, yeah, I, I, I am very proud to have that. And I do think it puts you in a relatively small group of extraordinary colleagues absolutely a lot of doors <laughs> yes absolutely i what would you recommend for someone that is interested in in making that uh potential jump whether it be into interpreting or specifically into court interpreting what is something that you learned along the way from making that transition that they're completely different skills, that you really have very little transferable skills. Of course, they both have to do with languages, but it's like a difference between acting and writing, right? There are two different things. One is very spoken dominated, it's all spoken. And the fact that my my grammar is excellent or my spelling is excellent doesn't help me in interpreting, <laughs> right? So uh, what, what helps is being being a quick thinker, right? Uh, if you're if you're very slow and deliberate, then interpreting is hard because it has to happen in real time. And I have helped several colleagues to transition too from from translation to interpreting. But it's surprising how 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 yeah how few transferable skills really there are. Of course, being bilingual is the the minimum requirement for both professions. And that you already bring too. But other than that, I don't think you have a huge advantage. At least I, I didn't really think I had a huge advantage because it, it is a very, very different skill. And speaking and listening at time is certainly not something that I'd ever done before. And I didn't even think it was possible. But here we are. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, sometimes what happens is we end up going to school and we get this training And, and then when we are actually out there in the real world, trying to apply our fresh skill sets, right, in, in the real world, we come to realize, such as the example you gave earlier about medical interpreting, that, that this wasn't really something that potentially maybe you're going to be interested in for the long run or in the long run. What was it like for you for your first interpreting encounter in the court? Oh, ah, I actually don't remember my first court uh, assignment, but I do remember that I, 
I passed the Nevada court exam on the first try at the master level, which came as a huge surprise to me, I'll say. <laughs> I, I think you need to get 80% or more or something like that. It, it just seemed it just seemed really absolutely impossible that I would get that. And I remember when the results came in, my dear friend Tracy Young, who was the one who taught me that very first workshop, she happened to be visiting Vegas here at my house when the envelope came in, when we opened it together. And I told her, there's no way I passed this. I said, you open it. And she opens, she's like, it says something about master level here. What is this? I'm like, oh, what? And then I'm sure they got the wrong person, right? <laughs> so I was just as surprised as everybody else. I, I didn't really think that I was ready. Um, but but I, I just remember being very, very nervous. I, I remember just being certified is the, the minimal requirement to work in court, but you really don't know anything. You don't really know where to stand. You don't know what to say. You don't know what piece of paper you're supposed to fill out. You don't know what to do with your hands. You, I, it, it was a little bit scary in the beginning, especially the state courts are very varied. You can get all kinds of things from, you know, victim impact statement. The next day you're doing a nasty divorce for a private case, and then you're doing maybe a landlord dispute with a tenant. And uh, so it's, it's a lot of criminal stuff, but it's, uh, it can, it can be from all kinds of fields. And I just remember thinking, I don't know all of this terminology. How can I possibly acquire all this terminology? And, and in the early years, I would just be sitting there just jotting stuff down. What did they say? Sidebar and uh, prayer for relief. And and I would just write this down and look them all up in my legal dictionary. And I felt like I knew a lot of terminology by then, but it, it wasn't nearly enough. I had a pretty steep learning curve like most people have and I mm -hmm. I'm still learning you know that's the beauty of this profession you never really stop exactly you never stop learning if someone were trying to get into the field or trying to even envision what that was like did you start with an agency or did you already have clients through your company uh, in order to go and interpret in, in a court setting or in a legal setting, I should say. Mm -hmm. uh, what, is, what is that like for someone that is trying to envision how they would be able to get even get in? We had no interpreting clients at all because it was all on the translation side. So I did the most obvious thing, which is once I passed, I checked in with the local interpreter's office from the court because they, they are usually in desperate need of certified interpreters because they all have all the courts around the country pretty much have a shortage of interpreters. And the same was true about, you know, 10, 10 years ago or so, 15, I can't remember, a long time ago. And so I just showed up there and I said, I'm certified. And they said, when can you start? Uh, on, a, on a contract basis, they have some in-house positions, but the, there wasn't one available. And I certainly didn't want it because I had my, my business twin translations to run. So basically said, come on over, set us your availability. And that, that those aren't, the best jobs, you know, we fought very hard to get decent compensation for the, for the courts around the country. I fought for this very, very hard as the former president of the Nevada Interpreters and Translators Association and just as an advocate for the profession. We have a long, long way to go. Those rates are not nearly where they should be. But as most interpreters start out in the courts and then Many of us uh, start getting private clients. You start meeting attorneys. They see that you do a good job. Word spreads. You meet court interpreting companies. They say, oh, you're doing a great job. Let me get your card. And after a while, you start, at least in my case, I started transitioning out of the courts 
also because a couple of years in, they decided to issue a new contract that was about 30% less of what they were paying before then. And they, and they handed it to me. They said, sign this. And I said, I'm going to take it home and have my pro bono lawyer look at it, as in my husband. But I said, I can already tell you what the answer is. And the next day I went back and I said, no, thank you. And, and, and said, we're hearing that even, you know, as we speak, how there are other states that are going through um, similar situations, such as the one that, you know, that you're sharing, um, which, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, again, we go back to the whole notion of really not people not understanding um, what the job entails and what it is, and that, that it is truly a profession. And it's, it's uh it's yeah too bad that you even had to go through that experience but but at the end of the day right it's advocating for the profession and knowing and understanding what it entails to do the job um and exposing really that skill set and exposing the job itself and exposing the professionals behind the job um coming together for for that cause i have i've had other people uh, other guests here on the show that have shared um, similar experiences and advocating for the pay. Yes. Um, and we need, we have a long way to go. And yeah. um, I, there's so much price pressure downward on, on court interpreters. Um, and I, I, I hope that trend doesn't continue, but it certainly looks like it will. The, the problem, so to say, is when I decided not to sign this new contract, my, my hope was that my colleagues would follow suit and that it would be able to put some pressure on the courts by saying, we're not signing this new contract. And I'm not blaming anybody. Everybody has different life circumstances. And for many, the courts are their only clients. So they're in a much different position. They don't have the ability to say no because all their eggs are in one basket, which is why I always say diversification is important. But long story short, of all the interpreters, unfortunately, two of us didn't sign the new contract. So we had, and this is when we would have had some leverage, right? And, and again, this is some things you do pick up in business school. One of them is leverage, right? Like you we would have had leverage then because we could have said, no, we're not signing the contract. And then they don't have interpreters. And now what, right? Mm. And we, we would have had a bit of better negotiating position, but but we didn't. So that moment was passed. And the only thing that changed for me is that I lost the client. <laughs> right. my, my lovely colleague also lost a client. So it was a risk that I took and I was willing to take it because I was in a situation that I didn't need that client. But I think we, we missed a golden opportunity there. And it's been sort of a, a, a struggle in, in, in Nevada, right? And I know I know that's the case in many other states and um, not to point the finger at Nevada or anything, but I, I do think we have our, our work cut out for us to, to gain the recognition we deserve, especially, especially monetarily, because that's where we need to get paid as the, the professionals that we are. And I'm, I'm honestly a little tired of, uh, of fighting for, for a fee schedule. I'm a little tired about it. <laughs> yeah, it's that uphill battle that uh, every few years it comes back around. Um, I imagine, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, in that specialization, but but in just hearing about the stories and seeing it, you know, in the news and you know these different articles that come up and and people that are so involved in in advocating it at different levels. Um, you know, out in California, you you remember with, you know, that the um, what was trying to, to be passed at the state level and how that affected language professionals. And it took a lot of shaking and moving from a lot of people um, that were directly involved advocating 
for the profession specifically because of the impact that it was going to have on the language professionals and that it was having as, you know, as, as it was developing. So um, yeah, I, I cannot imagine, you know, just having to continuously uh, having to fight for something like that. I can imagine the continuation of having to differentiate, you know, between a bilingual individual and a trained interpreter, you know, that, that, that in itself, I can absolutely relate to. Yep. Yep. The California fight was a very important one. And it's not over yet. And I'm California certified, so it does affect me. And we've done some remarkable advocacy work. Um, but still there, I feel like, yeah, as you said, it's an uphill battle. And uh, I, I wonder I mean, it's not like, I don't think this uphill battle is directly related to training and to the academic tradition or lack thereof that we have in this country, because in Europe, there's a huge academic, long academic tradition for interpreting and translating, and they have the same struggle. So I I think Mm -hmm. around the world, our profession is still significantly undervalued. And it's, um, it's something that's very concerning to me. And I, unfortunately, I do have the feeling that it has a little bit to do with the fact that it's female dominated that women tend to usually get paid less and it's a sad reality that we don't talk about much but I, I do think there is something to it wow yes that deserves a bit of a pause there and you know <laughs> ponder on that for a minute guys that is yeah, that was sorry, sorry to say it's just a theory but I, I think there might be something to it yeah for sure now that you mention it you know that makes me think hmm you know, where's the cue the music, the thinking music there? <laughs> Judy, on, on the flip side to that, nonetheless, as as now that we talk about um, females in the business and being very female dominant, um, many of us, uh, and I'll include and throw myself in there with regards to uh, becoming entrepreneurs, uh, have this have this fear, right? In, in, in being a a professional, a solo professional, a a solopreneur for, for various reasons. Um, As you had mentioned earlier in your story, when we're young, we, we love to take the risks, right? The risks, we don't even consider them as risks. It's, it's like a very matter of fact decision. Well, what else am I going to do? Right. Whereas to now we overanalyze potentially every, every single detail of a decision we're about to make. You, in addition to all the extraordinary uh, work that you've done, the training, the advocacy, uh, you know, the being uh, an entrepreneur, having your own business, you're also an author. And we've mentioned your book a couple of times, but I want to drop the title to to this book. And I want to get into your inspiration behind writing this book. The book is entitled uh, The Entrepreneurial Linguist, right? Or Entrepreneurial Linguist, um, which you uh, written also in the ATA's Chronicle and have talked about many of the components of this book. But talk to us about your inspiration behind the book. I know this, the title is very long and complicated. The Entrepreneurial Linguist, the Business School Approach to Freelance Translation. It's very long. Sorry, everybody. But and it, it dates back to 2010. So, so a few parts are already a little bit outdated as, as it happens. But my sister and I just thought that, well, our colleagues didn't have a lot of um, uh, a lot of business training, right? And uh, there was so much lack of information. And she's the one, of course, studied formally translation and interpreting early on, and she didn't learn any of these skills in any of her programs. And so we thought, well, we have some of this information, and uh, we should share it. And I think it started with a blog. We put up a blog called Translation Times, 
in 2008 or something, where we started sharing some of these entrepreneurial tips and how I was thinking about the business from a from a you know business school perspective. And people kept on saying, oh, we love these blog posts. You should write more. You should write a book. And we said, no, no, that sounds like a terrible idea. Then I started writing the, the column for the for the um, ATA Chronicle that I've been writing for oof, more than 10 years, which is also called The Entrepreneurial Linguist. It's not necessarily based on a book. It's just um, basically a monthly column about business topics. And then when they revamped the Chronicle, it went to every two months and I've been writing it for a very long time. And we just thought, well, it would be good to finally put this together, kicking and screaming. There were some, some big voices who were encouraging us to do it. I, if I remember correctly, my friend Corinne McKay was one of them. And then we, fi- <laughs> we finally did it. And it's a tremendous amount of work. And I don't, I don't recommend writing a book as sort of an easy business, uh, business stream of income because it's a lot more work than you'll make out of it. But I, I'm still very proud of it. And it's, it's required reading at many, many universities across the, the country and wow. the world, which I just today, somebody sent me a screenshot from their class from a master's degree saying look your book is required reading and it it is just really touching right to to see that it's helped so many people and we put together some advice that we thought was straightforward and that people could apply that they may not know that we happen to know and our goal really is to leave the industry in a better place than we found it and Mm -hmm. what what we want is for all our colleagues to be successful otherwise we wouldn't be be sharing it so yeah, that's the story of the book. And uh, it took a long time. We hired an editor, a layout person, um, all friends of ours. So it was kind of a family project and it was self-published. And we didn't really have any expectations in terms of anything, but it was very well received, was very widely reviewed by a lot of associations, including as far away as Japan. So yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun. And we do get asked about whether we're going to do a second edition, but I just don't know when I would possibly do this. So the so the answer for now is no. But we do know that it's outdated. You're like, uh, you know, the whole author deal, maybe a one-time thing. It may have been. It was a lot of fun, but it's also a lot more work. I I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I want to do it again. To be perfectly honest, has the book been translated, Judy? It has not. We've had so, so many offers from lovely colleagues who said they want to translate it for free, but we don't want anybody to translate anything for free. <laughs> we don't <gasps> want that. We would want to pay people. So we're like, absolutely not. Will we allow you to translate this for free? If it gets translated, we're going to pay, going to pay you for it. But then, of course, if it gets translated into a language that we speak with between the two of us is five of them, then we'd, we'd have to be involved in the editing process. And we just don't want that. We just don't want more work. And we feel terrible because my, many of them are friends and colleagues and they say, this would open new markets, but but we'd of course want to pay them and we ahead of time for the work. I just don't feel comfortable anybody doing free work. So the short answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was great. Yeah. So in other words, yeah, uh, book writing, if you even thought about it, like, talk to Judy first and see, you know, what are those, what are those things that, you know, you really get stuck on when it comes to, to writing a book? Cause it sounds like it is a lot of work. And I've then, only done it once. I'm hardly the expert, <laughs> but I can tell you about some of the pain points. <laughs> exactly. It's the experience. Actually, I've heard of many other uh, authors as well that uh, on different podcasts and things that have written books. And it just, it is a, 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 for many a painful experience, just because number one of forcing yourself to sit down and write. And then 
when you finally do, it's like writer's block. Now what, you know, how do I, how do I put this together? Oh, that is so funny. Well, familiar. <laughs> all of us uh, that have read your book are very grateful that, you know, you, you did take the time through the pain and all and completed it and sent it out there. And the universities are sharing it, that it continues to be shared because, uh, you know, if you wrote it back in 2010, it, it, this would have served me so much getting out of school and just, you know, to inspire me rather than, than, than this fear taking over of being an entrepreneur, um, you know, and so I highly recommend anyone that's listening, I'm definitely going to include the link, the name of the book and, and all the resources that Judy has out there that we're able to, um, to tap into and learn more from, from her experiences and her knowledge as well. We've got just a few more minutes left of you, Judy, and your great stories and all the great resources. But before we go, just a couple of more questions for you, please. If you could pick out from all the various experiences that you've had in the industry and in the business of interpreting and in everything else that you know, you've had the opportunity to be a part of, for an up-and-coming interpreter, someone that is interested very much in potentially even following your footsteps and, and becoming a female entrepreneur or not, um, mm-hmm. uh, it could be male or anything else, sure. right? Like uh, if, if they wanted to follow your footsteps, what would be that one recommendation that you would say, this is an absolute must, you need to, you need to do this? What would that be? Hmm, good question. Let me see if I can narrow it down. I think you have to be engaged in the profession. You can't uh, you can't just say, oh, I'm going to take this training and then see what happens. You have to reach out. You have to network. You have to learn. Uh, so often I hear from interpreters who don't have a clue about what's going on in the industry. They don't know what the developments are. And I think that's part of the job, right? To be to be engaged, right? To know which associations to belong to, to know what's going on with the court interpreters fight in California or you know, in the UK, or just to be in in the business, right? You can't truly be successful unless you're really, really engaged. And you can look at it as a job, which is perfectly fine, or you could look at it as a profession. And then you do a lot of professional development, you meet a lot of people, you really live and breathe interpreting, right? And that's what I've chosen to do. And many others don't, right? They say, this is a job, I go, I do the job, and I go home, and I'm not particularly engaged in interpreting. I don't go to conferences. And that's that's fine too, right? But I do think that limits somewhat your reach and it limits um, the sort of uh, how many people know you and how many people want to hire you, right? Um, so I think if you really want truly have reach beyond your local market, you have to be engaged at the regional, national, maybe international level. And I know that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. It sounds like a lot of work and, and it is, but bi- running a small business and building it is hard. If it if it were easy, everybody would be doing it. But it's also not um, it's also not rocket science. You know, be professional, dress the part, uh, make people respect you. If they if they don't, uh, fight back. You know, as as a woman uh, in a male dominated industry of law, for example, and even conference interpreting. I do a lot of conference interpreting there. A lot, a lot of men there, right? And it's uh, 99% of the time, it's great. But when it's not, you have to learn to, to stand up for yourself, right? Um, and uh, have a smile on your face and uh, be professional. And uh, you can't make everybody happy. But I think you can do your job well under adverse circumstances, which we have all the time. And 
it makes you grow and it challenges you and and some and some days are better than others and some interpreting assignments are incredible and and some are not you know that's just that's just the way the cookie crumbles <laughs> that's just the way the cookie crumbles exactly <laughs> judy what would you say to uh someone that really uh is trying to understand the profession is not necessarily involved in the profession, but what is that one thing that people typically get wrong about um, the industry itself that you would like to say, take the opportunity to say, Hey, in actuality. Oh, well that make that being bilingual makes you an interpreter, but I'm sure that's maybe too basic. That's uh, I think the main one uh, I hear that misconception from my lovely students at the university of California, San Diego, all the time. I ask them what their strengths are as an interpreter, and they say, well, I'm bilingual. I say, that's not a strength. That's a minimum requirement. <laughs> that's like saying I'm a piano player because I've got two hands. I'm like, no, having two hands doesn't make you a piano player, but it is a minimum requirement so that you can't list as a strength. So I think that, you know, and, and also maybe the other one is that translation and interpreting are completely different skills. And oftentimes I think from the interpreting side, we try to transition to translation and um, without the reservations that the translators have when they transition into interpreting. I think translators are much more aware of the differences in skills. Interpreters I've seen not so much. They, they, they think that it's very comparable in terms of skills and it's really not. So I've seen some, uh, some not so good uh, translations from, from folks who are trained or certified interpreters and you know, it's okay. I think you, I think you have to recognize what your limits are and you have to be honest with yourself. You know, I mean, I, I know what I cannot interpret. I know what I can't translate and the saying no to things that you know, you cannot do is something that will serve you very, very well because people will remember if you mess things up, they'll remember the stuff you didn't do well. And nobody will remember that you said to the client, I am not really comfortable with this. If you said yes to it and your name is on it, you better, be, you need to be prepared to do a good job. I Absolutely. think that's fair to the professional, fair to the client. Isn't that the truth? Oh my goodness. That was a bunch of, you know, very powerful uh, gyms there that you gave us, Judy. Judy has such an impressive background and, you know, she has given so much back to, to the profession. And I am just ever so grateful, Judy, that you said yes to this invitation, that you were willing to share your story here with us and giving us all these different tips on how we too can one day become Judy Jenner when <laughs> we grow up. <laughs> you know, you, I really appreciate your sweet words. It sounds like my dad wrote this, but you know, I, I'm really not that special. I, I think, I think we really underestimate ourselves all the time. You know, I, I do pretty much what everybody else already does a little bit of everything. Maybe I'm a little bit more visible about it, maybe a little bit more strategic, but a lot of my colleagues do behind the scenes, exactly what I do. They advocate for the profession. They try to change the profession. They share, they mentor. They're just uh, maybe they'll, they'll do it more quietly than I do. So I think there are so many people like me and I am very flattered. Of course, I thank you for the nice comments, but I, I, I also want to inject some humility into this. I, I, there isn't any Thing that I'm that much better at than everybody else. And I'm always happy to help others because I think that's what we're here for. Of course, we're here to earn a good living, but we're also here to make the profession better. And, and nothing makes me happier than to, to give back, as you've correctly pointed out. I do give back a lot. Yes. And she's so <laughs> humble about it, too. See, now, see, this is where, where I come in and step in and say, yes, but the thing is that 
for many of us, and I always I always use myself as an example because uh, as a as a young student trying to find my way in this vast sea in in things that I had no knowledge of, not even in business, in in thinking that this was my only real thing that I can give back to my community, which is making myself you know tr- going through training to improve um, so that I can give a, a great service. I, I couldn't find role models. And so it, it is a big step when we go out there and we share and we share our name and we share our resources and you brand the role of the interpreter so that the new generation that has come in knows exactly who they can look up and, and be able to follow those footsteps. So I once again, thank you so much, Judy. My very last question to you is, where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do? Well, thank you for the kind words. We have a website, twintranslations.com. Our blog is translationtimes.com, which we started, I think, in 2008. So we haven't, we posted very regularly for 10 plus years and we slowed down recently. Um, ATA, uh, the ATA, the American Translators Association, of course, I'm the spokesperson for the ATA, one of the spokespersons. So if you're not a member, uh, check out the American Translators Association. And I'm on Twitter. If you want to hang out on Twitter, I am at language underscore news. So I'm yeah, I'm, I'm around trying to talk about the profession, trying to exchange knowledge, learn new things. And I know Twitter it comes under fire a lot, especially recently. And I, I don't I don't blame anybody, but it's still a really good place to learn from each other in the translation and in the interpreting industry. So thanks for yeah. having me. It's been a pleasure. I almost wish we had more time, but nobody wants to hear me talk for an hour and a half. Oh, I bet they're saying right now. Yes, we do. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> Maybe know. we'll do a part two. I always talk about with our great conversations. We'll have eventually a part two, you know, bring in a different topic, maybe a, maybe a hot topic. And you're right. Twitter is kind of scary. <laughs> I, I'd love that. And yeah, Twitter is kind of scary, but it, I have learned a lot and I've made some really great connections and really made uh, deepened friendships and exchange information. So I try to, although it's hard to ignore the negative uh, part of Twitter, especially how much of a political issue it is. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, it's very disturbing, but I, I think we need to preserve at least what's good for us about Twitter, which is the ability to in- interact with each other on a, on a platform that's open and um, that still works. I mean, who knows next year, but as no of kidding. now, 2022, it still works. I'll make sure to include all those links and the information uh, for Judy on how to connect with her and all the various resources that she has out there for us in the profession uh, in the show notes. Thank you so much, Judy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the very end. If you'd like to connect with me, head on over to the website, brandtheinterpreter.com and click on the connect with me tab. You can also stay connected on social media. Instagram, Facebook, YouTube as Brand the Interpreter or Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Till next time.